Today on Live from the Formosa Tea House, talking about travel. The, the mannerisms and the behaviors of the people down there were just so much more friendly. The Queen Street Commons. And so what we've been trying to do is take some of the money that we've been generating with our web development company and turn it into real-world things. How and why we work. And I realized that deep in my heart of hearts, I had always maintained the illusion that I was someday going to be an architect. A Firefox update. It ended up that it was like four in the morning for me, and I had prepared the the changes to the front page of the Mozilla.org website. And a Harold Stevens Schooner update. And it was about Third Sea and Third Sea sinking in the harbor off Olympia, Washington. From the lounge at 84 Fitzroy Street. Here's live from the Formosa Tea House for January 31st, 2005. Go. I'm Peter Rukavina. I'm Dan James. And I'm Stephen Garrity. And we're here at 84 Fitzroy Street, which is our uh, co-corporate home. Uh, I am a tenant, and they are the lords <laughs> of the manor. <laughs> and uh, the Formosa Tea House, we should explain, is closed uh, for an entire month, which has rocked our world, but not prevented us from podcasting. So uh, we're back after a long absence, and because they're closed. Are we really podcasting? Uh, I'm Stephen, podcasting. you're against the term. I would like to make a note that I'm humiliated by the term podcasting. It's just so goofy that I can't bear to uh, say it with a straight face. I find no goofiness in it at all. So well, I, I, I always struggle with the word blog, too. I always tried to say weblog when I could, although I kind of gave up because it became... Of course, this is from the guy who has a radio show on the internet. Yeah. So. Well, I guess there really is no radio involved, is there? No. So uh, tell us about your fans of your radio show. I don't think we should get into that. <laughs> it's not on our agenda. <laughs> hey, we're very organized today. Stephen has uh, typed up a uh, an outline of the show today. I copied and pasted it. Yeah. So we're going to start uh, talking about travel because uh, one way or another we've all been or will be traveling. Um, so where do we maybe you, start? Maybe you, could, maybe you could start by telling us about your trip to Europe. Well, my father and I went to, in October, went on a sort of a father-son bonding pilgrimage trip to Croatia. And, uh, he Why had, Croatia? Well, that's where my grandfather's from. And uh, 30 years before, in the early 70s, he had gone with his father, so I was going with my father now, so there was sort of some nice symmetry to that. And uh, we were looking for our family roots and getting to know one another as adults, and yeah, it was lots of fun. We flew to London, and then we flew EasyJet to Ljubljana, and we were there for a night, and then we were in Croatia for about five days, and then took the ferry across the Adriatic to Italy, and then flew back on Ryanair from Italy to London. So it was, uh, if nothing else, we got to know one another a little more, and uh, I gained 13 great aunts and uncles that I never knew I had. So. Wow. Well, how did you go about finding people? It, it was weird. We sort of, it was all improvisational. My father speaks a little Croatian, so we could sort of make do that way. And we had a little bit to go on. Our only surviving blood relative in Canada, unfortunately, had a, a stroke. I mean, more unfortunately for him, but had a stroke two years ago and uh, can't speak. So all our ability to find out from him, he would be the guy who had him most recently there. All our ability to find out from him was lost. So... Uh, we talked to his ex-wife, and she gave us a little bit to go on. But uh, ultimately, the most successful part of the trip in terms of finding relatives is we went to the Catholic parish in Perusic in Croatia and talked to the priest there who pulled out these dusty records and found my grandfather and his father and his brothers and his sisters. So, uh, And it was all just a series of related happenstance events. Sounds like a good movie. Yeah, yeah, it would be a good movie. Uh, it would be a buddy movie. Yeah, yeah, father-son genealogical comedy <laughs> with Tom Hanks and Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> Thank you for comparing me to Macaulay Culkin. Or do I get to play Tom Hanks? No, sorry. <laughs> anyway, the other thing I, I thought it would be useful to mention here in a webby sort of way is that we flew from London to uh, Slovenia on EasyJet, and then we flew back from Italy to uh, London on Ryanair, both of which are these sort of discount carriers. If you're in the U.S., they're sort of Southwest-like. If you're in mm -hmm. Canada, they're Jetsco-like. And they really have rocked travel in Europe. Like, mm -hmm. it used to be if you were sort of a budget traveler in Europe, you would take the train or you would hitchhike maybe if you were even more budget traveler. And now neither of those make sense. Like, it's literally more expensive to hitchhike than it is to fly. Now, my understanding, just I read a Wired article about Ryanair a while back, and 
was that they managed to circumvent a lot of the, the, the cost of the larger airlines by flying to lower traffic airports and cities. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, if they were flying to PI, they'd fly to Summerside, not Charlottetown. And yeah. avoid the, the costly Charlottetown airport. Yeah, yeah. busy metropolis. Uh, yeah. Well, what they do is they, they convince, like they go to Summerside and they say, do you want us to fly tourists into Summerside? Okay, then we'll pay no taxes. And, you know, they, ha- they basically strike deals with, with smaller towns who want to drive tourists there. And it works. Like we flew from Ancona, Italy, which, you know, and I think it cost us $60 each or something to go to London, which was like a good hour and a half or two flight. Hmm. So Now, I, I was discussing this with our friend Nick, who's living in Paris right now. And he gave me a bit of a heads up that you have to watch out that though the flights can be cheap, getting to and from the airports without transportation can be a little bit difficult, whereas the train usually goes straight into the center of the city. But you didn't really run into that. Well, I mean, the thing is, where you run into that is in London, because you you traditionally, for flying on Air Canada from Canada, you land at Heathrow, and the budget airlines go from Gatwick or Stansted, which are two airports located basically on the other sides of London, so Mm -hmm. you have to get there somehow which either means taking a bus, which takes an hour and a half to stand set, or you have to go into London and then out of London on, on rail. So you probably spend, you know, because you have to convert from pounds and everything, you might spend 50 or $60 getting around London. But, I mean, in Italy, it cost us, I think, $1.35 to get to the airport in the airport bus. So it really just depends on the city. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, and I mean, you're going to face that with, with airlines. So if you're comparing airlines to airlines, it's certainly cheaper. Mm. And what you get on, on both EasyJet and Ryanair is is basically no service. Yeah. Uh, no no service for free, I should say, because you can actually buy a better selection of snacks, arguably, than you can on Air Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they really do, like, especially on Ryanair, there was a whole big shopping. You could buy watches and remote control cars. Does anybody do that? The, 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 well, I think, I mean, weird. they were looking for change and stuff, so I think... Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a big market in the uh, guilty parents or grandparents coming <laughs> back from vacation. Uh, but I forgot it, to buy my significant other. I was away on my again. anniversary, so. But, I mean, I, I've read articles to suggest that on Ryanair especially, Ryanair, I mean, and Ryanair often will fly you for a pound plus the airport taxes. And they do that because they make it all up on the residuals. They may, They sell you snack bars and coffee and... They're going to start selling you presumably movies and voice over IP calls or Wi-Fi or mm. whatever in the future. So, but it really does mean you can like we're thinking of going to Europe in the spring, and all we're going to do is get to London in advance, and then we'll just we'll decide which countries we want to go to after that, and we'll just and go getting to London other. isn't that difficult anymore either. No, no, there's a couple airlines to do that here too. So, do, do we want to move on to your? Next topic about Europe, or do we? Well, I, I guess that's part of it. I mean, we and we can segue from that into uh, talk about your travels too, because mm-hmm. uh, I think the thing about Europe in my life, and you can tell me whether this is true for you, but it always, like I, I can remember one or two times in my life where I received as a kid like a, lo- a long distance call, or my parents received a long distance call from Europe, and it was like the biggest thing that would happen like that year. And you would have to talk really fast, and you would, ne- you know, because you were probably paying like eight dollars a minute or something. Yeah. And I think that, plus the fact that it took so long to mail to Europe, plus the fact that you know nobody ever went to Europe, you know, in the middle class, really, uh, it just meant that it was like so far away that you would never go there. And now, especially when you live in PEI, you know, you're basically you're closer to Europe than you are to. Vancouver or Winnipeg or all those sorts of places. Both in terms of time and in cost of travel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can. We could get in a car right now, fly to Halifax, get on a uh, airplane tonight that leaves at nine, and we would be in London tomorrow morning, and that would basically be at three o'clock our time. Yeah. So, uh, people, you know, people will go to Halifax for the weekend for sometimes, you know, three or four hundred dollars more per person. They could go to London for a week. So, yeah. It's not, you know, it's not something you would do every week, but. Uh, it really does put European travel for me in a category which is like less of a once in a lifetime type experience and into something that you might do every year if you. Yeah. So instead it. of going and backpacking around Europe for two months, you'd go for a week to one country, come back the next year. Yeah. Another well, the, country. That's something we've talked about before. Where the, I think people, it's, it's kind of a Canadian, uh, Canadian thing to go backpacking in Europe, or maybe it's in North America. With your Tim Hortons mug. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but. You know that, that that's a big, it, it, that takes a significant amount of time to dedicate. And for me, I've always pushed pushed off going to Europe because I wasn't ready to spend three months hiking around. Um, but now that it's so inexpensive, it does make sense to just go for a week. And 
Well, it means you can go to Europe and not have to have a good time because you can go back. <laughs> like it's not your one time in your yes. life that you're going to go. That's a good to way Europe. to put it, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, talk about where you're traveling. Yeah. yeah um, last year on my honeymoon, uh, my wife Becky and I went to Costa Rica, um, and w- we thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. Um, and we found that um, the the mannerisms and the behaviors of the people down there were just so much more friendly and outgoing than they are here. We just we just love the area. So this year we decided we're going to go down to Peru um, for two weeks uh, and we're going to do cover a lot of the country, mainly the middle of the country and, and the southern half of the country, um, and just really go and do kind of the tourist thing. Uh, but doing the tourist thing in Peru I think is a lot different than doing the tourist thing in Washington, D.C. or London or something like that. So there's two of us going and four friends um, are going as well and we're going to... Uh, we're going to Colca Canyon, which is the second deepest canyon in the world. It's twice as deep as the Grand Canyon. Wow. Um, Are you going to be in it? Uh, no. Uh, well, I think actually we do stay in, in the valley of the canyon uh, one night in the hot springs and things like that. And then the uh, the second day of the tour of that area you, is called Cruz el Condor. Pardon my horrible Spanish. Um, and you go up to the top of the canyon. I think it's 15,000 feet you're at. And you watch condors circle up from the valley floor, um, and there's apparently 60, 70 condors at a time going up. So it's pretty cool. Condors are big birds. Uh, the largest birds in the world, actually, oh. up to 11 foot wingspans, I think. Holy so crap! Now you're making ugly uh, uh, vultures. You're making all the arrangements for this trip online. Yeah, uh, yeah, we haven't talked to a, a human being at all. And um, do you find that that uh, is there a language problem there and a there is poor broken English on a lot of the sites. Peru is, uh, unlike Costa Rica or um, kind of the Central American uh, Spanish countries, there's no English in Peru uh, or very little English in Peru. Uh, most things are Spanish only. The airline in Peru does have an English version of its website, and a lot of the tourist destinations do have broken English versions of their website. Um, but it's it's going to be pretty much Spanish. So there will definitely be a language barrier. But for booking online, we've used travel guides like Lonely Planet, Frommers, and all of those things. So we've been able to identify places that we can communicate with by so email. just as an example, like you, like Thursday night when you're going to be there, mm-hmm. have you booked a place to stay? We've booked all of our accommodations. And uh, do you traditionally, like, do you go and fill out a form, or do you send them email, or how does um, that work? It it's, it's depends on the hotel. There's one hotel. Uh, it's actually more of a, like a hostel slash hotel in there. They don't really have a lot of... Um, in our price range, a lot of hotels go in, like a Holiday Inn. Um, it's mainly run by small small families. And some of them have forms, but I think they're just email forms. <laughs> I never so think of what a small family is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, whatever. Um, you fill out a form, but I'm pretty sure that form just emails them anyway, right. because you usually get an email back. So you do have some communication with them. Some communication, right, yeah. Right. Um, and then, of course, booking uh, flights and things. That's all right. just done through websites. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so why Peru? Um, we wanted to go to uh, a country in South America, um, and there was a really good deal at a bookstore we were at with uh, the Frommers to Peru. <laughs> and so it was the first one we picked up, good and answer. we kind of liked it. Um, I like mountains. Um, most people know that. And the Andes are in Peru, um, which is fantastic. We're going to Machu Picchu, which is kind of a so You're like a mountain groupie. Yeah, I'm like a mountain groupie, you know. This year it's the Andes, next year the Himalayas. And well, you know, it's an in- that's an interesting question because... If if you are a relatively, you know, in the world context, wealthy North, North American and can afford to basically go anywhere now yeah. in the world, which is not true, certainly, of my parents' generation, both economically and logistically, it means that you you can go anywhere, so you can get sort of paralyzed by that. Like, how do you choose? Because you're not going to be able to visit. Overwhelmed by choice. To yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, and I've done this. Like, we went to Czechoslovakia in 1998 because I liked a building in Prague. But... <laughs> You know, it was just sort of, you had to pick somehow. So Yeah. And, and again, the low cost of travel, um, we used um, flyer points to book our tickets down, but some of the people we were going with just bought tickets, and they were $798 returned from Charlottetown. To Peru? To Lima, Peru. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And that's like Air Canada, straight. Um, Charlottetown, Toronto, direct. Toronto, Peru, direct. You know, it's interesting. I did a, a email interview, which I haven't published yet, with George Stewart, local travel agent, and one of the questions I asked him, I sort of assumed that, you know, in his case, 
he'd be booking a lot of trips to Cuba and the Dominican Republic and maybe some trips to Europe. All-inclusive resorts. Yeah, but but that, you know, islanders wouldn't be really adventurous travelers. But he said that you couldn't believe that's for the furthest from the truth. Like, islanders go everywhere. Wow. Like, he books trips to Africa and, you know, all sorts of places. Wow. That, and maybe it's just islanders don't talk about traveling very much, but... But uh, he said, as you know, you would see the same sort of profile here as you would anywhere, like at a big city travel mm-hmm. agency. One of the things about Peru um, that appeals to us is just it's not Europe um, in that it's a lot cheaper to, once you get there, you can really do quite well on $25, 30 a day. Right. Um, whereas, and that's staying in, you know, single rooms with private bathrooms and, you know, breakfast included in the morning, things like that. So if you go to Europe, I find... You can stay in a hostel for quite a bit cheaper, but your level of service, I guess, kind of declines. Well, that's that. like yeah. by going to Peru with a $700 return ticket, you're basically doing a similar. It's like if you went to Southeast Asia, except to go to Southeast Asia, you'd pay $2,000 for a ticket. So right. that's interesting. Yeah. And that, um, I'm lo- just looking at our agenda, and the next uh, agenda item is the one country a year plan. Um, and this is something that Becky and I decided on our honeymoon that we'd love to do, would be every year go to a new country. Uh, this year is Peru. Um, and I think because it's so cheap, why not? You know, Instead of going to, to Halifax for a weekend or driving to Montreal for a weekend, why not get on a plane and go to... Andorra. Argentina, you know, Chile, or anywhere for a week or two. Um, and just, just have fun. It's just at that price range now where it's actually possible. Well, uh, the, the other thing I think maybe we take for granted is the fact, A, that because of the industry we're in and that we're sort of basically self-employed, we can can do do that. that. I mean, if you're a teacher, you can't leave in the middle of January for three weeks, or at least as easily. Um, And also that we can work from anywhere, you Mm -hmm. know, if we want to do it for for longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's it's hard to take your work with you in many professions. One thing I found is that there are Internet cafes everywhere. When we were in Costa Rica, we were sitting in a, a jungle town in a rainforest, and literally the town would be no more than 150, 200 people, and there were two internet cafes, yeah. and for like 25 cents, you could use the internet mm-hmm. for three hours. I found, I found the same thing in Thailand, I found the same thing in Spain, I found the same thing in, I mean, I found the same thing in Czechoslovakia in, in mm-hmm. uh, 1998, mm-hmm. and I mean, the, you're right, it's like, in the. it's almost, the further you are from the center of things, the more valuable and prevalent internet cafes mm-hmm. are, because they're so much more useful and integral, so... It's interesting that we're hearing you guys talk about this. Now, both of you would be more like interested in travel almost as a hobby than I would be. More worldly, you might want to say. <laughs> hey, he is going to London and Paris. Oh, well, that's, that's what I was going to talk about, that uh, um, the places that I'm, I'm more of a reluctant traveler, but the places I've been to and am planning to go in the next year are, uh, are more on the typical travel plan. I, I was, I've been out to the West Coast. I've been to California twice in 2004. I'm going to London and Paris in uh, 2005, but it's interesting that, that it seems that you guys are not very interested in going to the, the places that are typical travel locations, and it's more like you're intentionally seeking places that are off the beaten path. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean I, I, the other thing I have found generally when traveling is that even if you are going to you know like France or Spain or you know sort of a commonly traveled to country from North America. It's. I often find it like when you're re- reading the Lonely Planet book, the way that they sort of rate the importance of things is sort of relative to the world of travel. So they'll say such and such a town in I- Italy is like a barren industrial town, not worthy of a tourist visit. But they mean that compared to the Vatican, not compared to like Montague. Yeah. So if you go there, it's way better than Montague. <laughs> and so we were like in a t- this town that my father and I were in, in Coda, Italy. It's on the the far eastern coast of of uh, the Italy, and it was described, you know, as sort of this mundane town that would you wouldn't, you know, you would use it as a utility town. But we spent like a good, well, we were there for like forty eight hours, and there was museums and shops and Italians there. <laughs> so it was all the Italy <laughs> we thought? needed, and it was. I got a sense that we probably got more out of it because we didn't, we weren't rushing around to like see the Colosseum mm-hmm. and the Vatican and you know all these. Mm-hmm. There was nothing to see, quote unquote. So you got to mm-hmm. see a lot more of. What there was to I think uh, I think I do look for things off the beaten path um, and, and part of that's cost you know you don't yeah. have to spend a lot of money uh, to do that but I think a lot of it's like the indie rock peat uh, of travel where you want to go somewhere, go somewhere cool no one's been yeah exactly somewhere cool where where you know not a lot of people go that have really interesting things like Peru has like 
some of the cradles of civilization uh, in it, like the Inca Empire. And I, I think that's just a lot more interesting for me to see than the Eiffel Tower. Or the Mona Lisa. Or the Mona Lisa, yeah. Well, I think, too, above and beyond the self-indulgence of travel, there is a, a responsibility to your home community to bring back stories and Nick of, of well, no, I mean, you know, you Hotel go to, soaps. yeah, you go somewhere else, you see that something's done differently, you come back, and that enriches, in theory, mm-hmm. your your own life, but also if you talk about it and share it, and you know, say other people should go there. Yeah, I mean, it's that's how we learn about the rest of the world, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, it's if everyone just went to London and Paris all the time, <laughs> where would Man, we be? My trip sucks. I'm totally well, I mean, the irony for me is that... But it is your honeymoon, so it's not yeah, really good. But the irony yeah. for me is that we're, we're sort of casting going to London and Paris like it's just an everyday thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And I think for most people, it's, it would be like the most dramatic thing you would do in your year. Yeah. So and I, I, really I actually am planning to have the uh, sort of the typical... Uh, I mean, when we go to Paris, we're going to... Have a camera be, around your neck on a land. Yeah, we're going to be tourists, and we're going to do touristy things. And well, and the, you know, that's... What, when we travel, we do the same thing. It's like thing. going to and Disney World. Yeah. And you'll, yeah. <laughs> now, you, you have a, uh, your, one of your goals is to hit a new country every year. I have yeah. a new travel goal myself. Never in my entire life do I ever want to be in Los Angeles. I've yeah. avoided it so far, and I think that's something I yeah. can avoid through the rest of my life. I've been in San Francisco and San Diego, and I've taken the bus by Los Angeles with my father. Didn't go in, no. I've been in Los Angeles uh, when I was a very young child. I went to Disneyland. Sorry. But the thing is, you, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be Firefox, the reality TV series next year, and you're going to have to go down to L.A., and you'll do it willingly, and no, that'll be that. Yeah, uh, We should probably move on with our agenda, or we're going to have the longest, hey, most boring radio Here's show some opportunity world. for interactive viewer feedback, or no, what do you call them? Listener feedback? <laughs> Podcastees? Uh, what do you call the, uh, what you would call in the TV world a shot list? What do you call it on the radio? Oh, yeah. Prompt like, list. Well, we've been calling it our agenda, which yeah. is pretty lame. It sounds pompous, so I'm not going to call it an agenda. I have an agenda. <laughs> um, uh, Steve, you were going to talk about, um, you kind of briefly mentioned it, you've been to the West Coast uh, twice this year. Um, yes, uh, both trips were related to the Mozilla Firefox work we've done. and Which uh, is a reoccurring theme on our radio show. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, it was interesting because uh, I hadn't been to the West Coast I had been to only been to Vancouver, but never to California until last year, and we went twice. Um, and a couple of the other guys from here at Silver Orange came. Dan was with me on the first trip. Actually, both you guys were there on the first trip. Um, that was the spontaneous trip to California. We arranged yeah. in three or four days. It uh, um, bizarre, very bizarre being in Silicon Valley. You know, we oh, like I was in Mountain View and Palo Alto and San Jose, and uh, we stayed at the. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of travel advice, you want to avoid the travel lodge in uh, San Jose by the arena, uh, where the uh, sliding bathroom door had a hole kicked in it. We had to deal with the uh, attendant through a bulletproof glass. Um, and I think I paid twice because I paid online and they didn't believe me, and I paid again. Um, weird being in Silicon Valley, where it's like the, it's kind of like the dot com bubble never burst because whoever's there was are the people who have survived and I find there's a whole feeling in 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 San Francisco and in all of Silicon Valley of um, maybe that you would get when you're in Washington DC from a government perspective that it's in a bubble and it's it's like 20 square miles surrounded by reality yes it's a disconnect from the rest of the world and and people seem to be able to suspend their understanding of normal human beings lives when they're there so if need place to visit don't want to live there. Well, it's a very contrasted place from Prince Edward Island, Canada. Like, I don't think you could go uh, in North America to a, a, any more of a different spot culturally. Yeah. yeah. And I, re- I was in Cupertino once in 1994, and I was at a hotel, and I had to go to Apple. And I asked at the desk, like, how long will it take me to get to Apple? And you they had said, to go to Apple? Well, I was going to a conference at Apple. Oh, okay. And they said, oh, it's just like, you know, five, ten minutes. And... I assumed that they were talking about walking because mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'll just walk down to Apple. <laughs> but it was actually on the freeway. Well, yeah, it was like yeah. Uh, I could I could actually walk there, but it took me like an hour and a half to walk there because they just never heard of anyone walking. Yeah, and there weren't sidewalks, and you know, it just wasn't set up that way. Like it very, I thought the Charlottetown was a car culture, but I mean, we don't oh, have anything it's on. Unbelievable! That. Where and it's, there, there's very good public transit around San Francisco, but it was like 
you know, we'd go out for lunch and you'd be on a freeway for two minutes right. and to get there, which is, means you're actually traveling quite a distance. I wonder if it is, if it's actually pleasant, you know, to, to live there in any way. Well, the, I certainly didn't like a lot of aspects of it, but they have a couple of things definitely going for them. The city itself is quite beautiful. San the, Francisco. The, San Francisco. The, the, and most of Silicon Valley is with, I don't, I, I don't know what actually encompasses Silicon Valley, but the places I was in, Mountain View and stuff, were all like an hour from the city. Uh, the weather is beautiful. It's nice, but it's not particularly hot. And you're within like an hour's drive of a lot of really beautiful scenery. Well, see, this is the debate that I go through. Like, I grew up just sort of in the uh, a triangle between Kitchener, Guelph, and Toronto within an hour's drive of Niagara Falls and Toronto, you know, Buffalo and all these places where I could have gone. And we never, relatively speaking, we didn't avail ourselves of those. Buffalo? Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I exaggerate slightly. Well, we've just but alienated all of our listeners from yeah. Buffalo. <laughs> Sorry, John. Uh, I was just about to make a football allusion, but I couldn't remember the name of the team. In Buffalo the Bills. Bills. The Bills, yeah. Go Bills. Uh, <laughs> was that your football allusion? That was, yeah, that's as good as I can get. <laughs> But I just wonder whether people who, like, and I, I try asking, this is one thing I found, is people who I know who are expatriates in a foreign country, you try and get them to characterize their expatriate experience, and for some reason they can't. Mm. It's like, I don't, they can't contrast it to their old life, and I don't know whether they're unable to do so, or just what it is. But and So it's hard to get people to say, like, if you're in Paris, I was talking to Nick, who's living in Paris now, about this, and I just... I couldn't get a sense of, like, do you wake up on Tuesday morning and you don't have very much work to do? So I'll just go down to the Louvre for, you know, a while and look at the Mona Lisa. See, I, I, I've been in pretty close contact with with Nick just through work, and um, he posts photos and stuff. And I do get a sense from him of his life in Paris. And, I mean, he doesn't go to the Louvre, but he goes to, bakery he, he goes to the bakery around right, the corner. Right. And he, uh, I get the impression that he's living the, uh, the artist in Paris lifestyle. See, Catherine and I are talking about going with Oliver to some European country, maybe Slovenia, for a longer period and, you know, renting an apartment for a month and sort of ha- being sort of hybrid tourist, not really residents, but, you know, more than just dropping in for three days. And I, I think our great fear on some level, unstated, is that we might go there and really like the sort of day-to-day, you know, just the sort of the insignificant things that loom greater and they're significant, you know, like having a fresh vegetable market available Access to you. Access to quality within. cheeses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that we might then come back here and just... There is a Gouda cheese lady. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. But that involves driving in a car and only eating Gouda. Uh, I, ju- I just want, you know, there's the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence argument, but then there's the whole, what if we came back here and life was a living so, hell? <laughs> well, couldn't you just, if you, don't you have the freedom that if you really did uh, like it somewhere, you could probably permanently relocate. I think yeah. we have like a two or three year rent agreement with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, but the other thing is that what, you, what I have come to not underestimate to the degree to maybe which I once did is after having been here for 12 years, you just know, you know a lot of people a little and you sort of know where all the streets are and you know who's related to who and that degree of comfort in a place is not to be uh, trifled with. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a good place to be stationed. That's kind of Becky and I look at Prince Edward Island. I, I don't think we'll ever um, intentionally move somewhere else for a long period of time because all of our family are is So here. if you were kidnapped, you might If we were kidnapped, we may end up living somewhere else, <laughs> if, if you can call that living. But we, we kind of see Prince Edward Island as an ideal place to be stationed out of uh, and regularly travel and, and you know regularly do things other than Prince Edward Island activities and go you know maybe live somewhere for two months. And, and I think it's just... Kind of that place in North America where the cost of living is low enough to to call home and you know say hi to your families and go to the beach and yeah. do all those things. Well, I think you I can think say that about most locations, though, mm-hmm. like a lot of locations. Except for Palo Alto. What's 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 significant for me here is that this is where I grew up. This is where my family is, and that's what makes it a pl- like the place where I choose to live. That I mean, there are aspects of it that are nice and beautiful that I like, but there are. Does anyone grow up in Palo Alto? <laughs> well, there must be these. The Silicon people must have children. Yes, they have autism. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, moving on <laughs> from from trifling mentions of serious mental health issues. Uh, Dan, let's talk real things. 
Yeah. Oh, we're skipping to Dan's that Dan's taking a picture of us with his camera. But All right, well, that was uh, supposed to be a joke on oh. the uh, agenda. Okay. But well, we you better well make jump. the joke then, then we can move on. Um, I don't even know how to bring this up. Um, well, let's talk about the 84 uh, Fitzroy Street, Queen Street Commons, and that'll segue oh, okay. us into that. Um, for those of you who read my blog, ceoblues.com, um, you'll see that we've... Um, Silver Orange has purchased a building that's actually just kind of... I don't know if it's Kitty Corner. What do you call on a... I'd uh, rather you not use the term Kitty Corner <laughs> ever again. Uh, anyway, it's on. It's just around the corner from us, uh, and we actually share backyards with the building. And uh, one of the things that's that's going to happen in this building, um, we're not buying it for Silver Orange purposes. Um, we're not going to move in and have offices in there. But we've kind of seen, actually, things like this... Um, the, the radio show, we have a lot of people coming and going in our building, 84 Fitzroy. Um, we've had meetings where the room we're actually recording in right now has been full of city staff members and uh, councillors and... Aspiring members of parliament. Aspiring members of parliament. And we've kind of become this hub of activity um, in our city for a certain group of people. And as that group of people gets more and more active, I think it's kind of, you know something that we'd like not to have in our basement or our main floor every day. Um, so we're kind of seeing this new place um, as a avenue and a venue for, for that to happen, um, where we can be involved with it but at arm's length for it too. So if we're really busy with a project, we can still work and we don't have to worry about um, hosting people and, and things like that and allowing other people to do this uh, because we're not the only organizers in, in the city about events like this. So we're kind of just creating an open... Uh, we're calling it, and this is going to be the first time it's been publicly released, um, the Queen Street Commons, um, and it's going to occupy an entire floor of this new building. And it's basically going to be um, an open office concept, um, not the open software uh, product called Open Office, but basically people can, for a small price per month, be a part of this Commons um, and have desk space, lounge space, boardroom space. Um, Some telecommunication infrastructure. Tele yeah, um, telephony infrastructure, um, internet printers, things like that. Um, so you're really, we're really hoping to get those people who are consultants that work at a home to come in and kind of be part of a community. And then, then we're just laying the foundation for it. We're not sure what's going to happen on top of that, but we do expect things like the things we've been doing here over the past year, year and a half to happen, where they're bringing in people for debates or sessions or their members of parliament to grill them on, you know, the next issue or something like that. So this we'll comes get some uh, synergy going. We'll get some synergistic, it's be synergistic. Uh, outflow. The uh, part of the the what originally got us driving to look to purchase another building is that, and we've talked. This is talking about real things. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> as a as a web development company, we sometimes lament that though we enjoy very much our work and take a lot of pride in it, w we don't produce anything physical or tangible. And that, I think, can sometimes be difficult, that you can take a lot of pride in building a piece of software, but you can't hold it in your hand. And uh, the and so what we've been trying to do is take some of the money that we've been generating um, with our web development company and turn it into real-world things that we can put to use, like the building we're sitting in now and now the, ne the building uh, next door, too. So yeah, there's a real fondness for real estate um, within a few of the members of Silver Orange. And... You know, real estate in, the, in terms of acquiring and you know negotiating real estate, as well as fixing it up and keeping you know keeping good care of buildings and renovations and things like that. So I don't know if that those are our makes real it sound plans. extremely boring, but no, <laughs> I, I I am one who sits on the fence about this sort of thing. I I having having sort of been on the periphery, the far outmost Neptunic periphery of the arts community. I've sort of watched with interest the whole Arts Guild thing because I think you could probably take what you've just said and put it in the mouths of the Arts Guild people and it would be probably reflect a lot about why the Arts Guild was needed. The Arts Guild for out-of-town listeners is that the old Royal Bank building in Charlottetown that was taken over by the arts community as a, a sort of space for art to happen. And there's printmakers and there's a performance space and mm -hmm. various other things. But... You know the the problem, and I've seen this happen in other cities. And the the problem that often has run into with these things is that 
then the building becomes, you know, you wanted to do all this neat stuff, but then the building itself and the, the upkeep of the building and the paying the mortgage of the building, I, and this is, I think, probably tour of the arts community than it is with, with you guys because you have some way of sustaining this, but it sort of becomes the thing that you're doing. The it building becomes, becomes the your project. Yeah. And so you're ha- you, know, you have fundraisers so that you can pay for the building so that you can have fundraisers in the building to pay for the building. Yeah, and that's kind of, we're trying to, take care of that. This is not the only thing happening in this building. Right. Um, it's actually, we're almost coming at it from the dip, different angle where we, where there was a nice building that was near our current building. We wanted to invest some money in, in uh, real estate. And it's almost like, the for us, the building is the original attraction. Right, right. And this is something that we can do with it. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that'll avoid that pitfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just interesting sometimes to see that People have an idea about something, and they think, well, only if we had the space to do this in, and they sort of stop there. And yeah. I don't think the the lack of space, you know, there's always space in one way or another. Coffee shops and well, or you know, or you can you know you can do something in the middle of a street, or you know, like the it's the Confed Center did is they rented the old Vogue Optical space to mm-hmm. put an artist in residence there. Yeah, so. well, we we Dan and I ran into something I think that's somewhat analogous to that, where uh, we're aspiring amateur musicians, and uh, we aspire to be amateurs, I guess. And we, uh, we've always thought if we had some good recording equipment or access to a studio, we could make some really great music. And then now that we, we've got most of the equipment that we've always wanted, we actually found ourselves in the weekend sitting around looking at this, you know, great microphones, mixer, computer, and everything. And uh, it was uh, we're now our talent, lack of talent, is now the uh, the biggest barrier. So yeah, yeah you, people often you can often hold off on things because there's something you really need that you think you need, but if you were really going to do it, you could just get it done anyhow. Well, I've ran into a very similar thing. I was watching Charlie Rose last week and Philip Johnson, the architect, had died. Yes. And they were talking a lot. They interviewed Frank Gehry and they talked about Philip Johnson. And and I realized that deep in my heart of hearts, I had always maintained the illusion that I was someday going to be an architect. Because I had sort of toyed with the idea coming Just out like of high George school. Just like George from Seinfeld. George <laughs> <Well>, yeah. <laughs> but I, I toyed with the idea coming out of high school, like maybe I would go to architecture school, but I didn't. I, you know, I went into a general arts program. But I'd always sort of thought deep in my mind that, you know, eventually I'd be done with this computer stuff and I'd go on to do a real thing and it would be architecture. And then just sort of listening to Frank Gehry talk and, and Philip Johnson talk and thinking about architecture and why I hadn't done it yet, I realized that, First of all, I have none of the basic skills required to be an architect. Like, I can't think in three dimensions. I'm not particularly... I mean, I like buildings, and I appreciate a good space, but I have no idea how you would go about creating that. And I can't deconstruct it. And I don't... You know, I'm interested in buildings, but I'm not passionate about them. And then I realized, with a few exceptions, I don't really like architects as people. You're the worst architect ever. (laughs) So... So I decided that maybe I should just let that dream go now. Yeah. And, well, uh, I'm a designer, and I don't like designers by uh, well, as a rule of thumb. But you're good at it. At not liking them? <laughs> no, no, you're good at being a de- <laughs> you're good at not liking them. Well, thank you. But you're also good at being a designer, which I mean, I, it was even deeper with me because I realized I didn't like if you said here draw a picture of a cube. I could literally not draw a picture of a cube. I cannot think in three dimensions. So I think you've chosen the right career path. Well, yes, but uh, it, you know. And not to be too real or anything, but uh, <laughs> it did it did strike me. I mean, I was going to make that comment that wow, we're really getting into well, this. Well, just next jumping subject. off on your comment about about not creating anything tangible, mm-hmm. I realized the other danger that you run into doing the kind of work that we do, and I think this is true of all three of us, is that we're not really doing. We anything are not our matters? own client. Well, no, I, I think things matter, but we're doing it for other people to other people's for other people's ends, and part of that is you know we're making other people wealthy. And we're skimming something off, but there's something more to it than that. Which you know, we're sort of dealing with. We are not artists. We are craftspeople. We're mercenaries. We're mercenaries. Yes, <laughs> and that you know, I, I've sort of come to terms with that. On you know, and I'm not complaining about it. It's a good living, and I enjoy the work. But at the same time, sometimes I sort of thirst for something which is my own thing, and that maybe that's what my weblog is on some level. And your too. radio show, and yeah, yeah, that's what the, the, those things are for me. Um, my own weblog, the ra- recording radio stuff, music, the lame recording we're doing. Yeah, that's my musical recording. This this recording we're doing right now is awesome. <laughs> yeah, shall we move on? Okay, sure. uh, I guess we have to talk about Johnny and his bad smelling lamp now. <laughs> Again, a, a joke item on the agenda. Well, I will use this joke item and morph it into a real thing that has practical relevance for the programming community. Wow. Don't put a 150-watt light bulb <laughs> in a desk lamp. Well, 
you know, it's it's been interesting for me over the past couple of years as Johnny, who is the other half of Reinvented, has become a computer programmer, uh, to watch, to sort of see computer programming through his eyes because it's for me, I've been doing it now for 25 years and so it's sort of, I can't think about it because I can't see myself doing it. And one of the things I realized is that where, when you're programming, you know, it's really a, a process in large part of solving problems uh, because it's, you know, you would think that in an ideal world you just sit down and write a program, but of course it never works that way. It breaks down and you're sort of, it's like a battle against bugs. And often bugs are, you see things happen and you think, well, there's the cause and this is the effect. But the cause and effect can sometimes be illusory. Yeah. And the cause is sometimes something completely different. So maybe you get error reports about this thing and you think, well, because this thing is happening, these other things must be caused by that. But it's not the case. Yeah. And so the reason that I bring this up <laughs> at this point is that Johnny, who has the office beside me, had this really weird smell in his <laughs> office. <laughs> and it <laughs> Which seems like an insult, but it's not. Stay through to the end of the story. And it was coincident with him going down to our client Yankee for a week. So Johnny left. I was here alone. I moved the fridge, our little bar fridge, into his office. And when he came back, there was a smell in his office. So logically, you would think that there was something in the fridge. Yeah. So we ended up throwing away a lot of the stuff in the <laughs> fridge. Like we threw away some honey because it was sort of a honey-like smell. And, and we finally ended up moving the fridge out of his office. And we smelled the carpets. And the, you know, we just couldn't figure we out what We called in extra guest sniffers. Yeah, yeah. And finally, I guess it was, was it you or your father? It was or? my father and I in a combined yeah, effort. We, br- we brought in a special hazardous materials team. And you found <laughs> out that... That there was a... Uh, Johnny's wife had had gotten him a uh, a lamp at at a used store here in Charlottetown, uh, just a little desk lamp, and they had put a 150 watt light bulb in this little desk lamp, and it was literally slowly burning the lampshade on it, um, and that's what we discovered. And it smelled sort of like rancid burning honey. We thought, and we thought for a while too that there could have been some kind of dead rodent in a wall. Yeah, yeah. And we weren't really sure how to deal with that. So the moral of the story is that the obvious problem is not necessarily the one that is the problem you should be looking at. Wow. I think that's a moral of the story anyway. I don't think we've ever had morals before. (laughs) So Firefox, (laughs) update. Uh, Yeah, I'll give a little bit of a Firefox update. It's been quite a while since we talked about it last. Um, I think we were, the last time we recorded it was on the cusp of Firefox 1.0. Well, 1.0 was here. Woo! Um... (laughs) <laughs> I hear the passion in your room. There was a lot of fanfare. Um, actually, it was quite a a big deal. It was a it was quite a big press event, and it's been getting Firefox has gotten I think even more attention than people who were enthusiastic about it expected. And the number of downloads has been enormous. I don't know what to make of numbers in terms of downloads, but there have been like 20 million downloads since it was officially released in. And was it early December, I think? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it w- in terms of the actual launch, it was. I wrote a bit about this on my weblog, but it was it, talk about lame fanfare. The the launch itself, um, because of the time zone difference between California and here in the East Coast, it ended up that it was like four in the morning for me, and I had prepared the the changes to the front page of the Mozilla.org website, and uh, so I had set an alarm to wake me up at about three thirty to get up. And all the people at the Mozilla Foundation were w- waiting for me to wake up and launch the new website. So I, I did this CVS commit and actually updated the website, and Firefox was released. So, so even though my involvement has been pretty small, I was I got to be part of the actual launch. But then I found myself. This was I was sitting in Charlottetown in my bedroom with my laptop. Actually, at, in your bed. In my bed at four in the morning. And uh, there was an enormous There's a mental of, image for you, folks. Th- th- there was uh, quite a uh, anticlimactic launch, I can tell you that, because I launched it and then sat there and then figured, well, I guess I'll go back to bed. I wonder if that is, we assume, like I think if you ask the average person on the street, like how was Firefox released, if they had a conception of what that was, it would be sort of like they'd imagine some sort of NORAD-like command center with a giant switch and a door People turning open. keys at the same yeah. time yeah. and stuff. And I wonder if we, you know, now that we know the truth behind Firefox, maybe like when 
Star Wars 6 comes out and we think it's like that. Maybe it's just like George <laughs> Lucas prints like release on or presses yeah. the release button on his keyboard and that yeah. like makes all the copies. Well, there's a, actually a good uh, Mitchell Baker uh, who I think is president. I'm not sure her title, but she's with the Mozilla Foundation. She wrote a weblog post about the day that Firefox was released and, and my little story was only one of many that went on that day. There was all kinds of issues about, you know, getting a mirror set up for the download servers. There was last-minute um, internationalizations coming in uh, to, to release in other languages as well. And, you know, right up to the last minute, I was making changes to the website. They were saying, the Japanese release is out. It doesn't meet the, the quality assurance standards. So, and then five minutes later, it was back in because it's been reviewed by the team. And I, I think it actually probably was a lot more NORAD-like than the final commit to the website. See, the, uh, really what I was doing was, yeah, a lot, lot like doing an update to the website, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of different components like that that happened. And anyway, but, but the technologies involved and the people involved, I mean, it, it sounds like the NORAD-like aspect is in the, uh, you know, it's a complicated endeavor, but but it's something that other people just like you are doing. Like, they're not... Human beings. Yeah. There were no some of them, Some involved. of them smarter than I. And speaking of which, that's another good segue, uh, um, wanted to talk about Ben Goodger, who was uh, the lead engineer on Firefox, who still is. Um, there's been, uh, there was an announcement just this week or last, I think, that he has moved from being an employee of the Mozilla Foundation, and he is now an employee of Google, which is um, quite a big, a significant piece of news. And there's another piece, another, um, uh, someone who works on the, I think Darren Fisher is his name, but he works on Mozilla that is now hired at Google as well. He works on networking protocols but that um, there has been long-running speculation that Google might at some point release a web browser of their own um, something that I don't particularly think will happen but that's further fueled re- the, the, the rumors but Ben is going to continue to work in his role as leading the project though he's now doing it as a Google employee and does that get uh, I mean Google I sense is probably doing this because Google's a good corporate citizen, but it probably makes sense for them to sort of have someone. I think if Google could have someone working at Microsoft on the Internet Explorer team, they would want to do that too. Well, like yeah. It's probably good for Google. It's a good analogy. Actually. But do you think that, um, I don't know, like if Yahoo wanted to hire someone from the Mozilla Foundation to work on Firefox, that, that probably wouldn't be a problem, would it? Like no, I, I don't think so. The, there's a lot of people who work on, there's probably more people who yeah, probably more people p- being paid to work full-time on Firefox for other corporations than there right. are employees of the Mozilla Foundation. Red Hat has several employees that work on it full-time, IBM, Sun, um, I guess now Google, and there are other companies too, But and Oracle does too. And these, I mean, if you if you look at Red Hat, for example, or IBM, they're, it's, it's like they're, they're contributing to this by paying the salaries of a few engineers. And they're getting from it a pretty significant chunk of an important stack of software that they can use in 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 offering solutions. But to their are customers. you under the impression that in any of these people, not focusing on Ben particularly, but uh, if IBM had a you know if IBM thought that it would be good for IBM if you know something happened in Firefox, it worked, it operated differently, or maybe if if these bugs were fixed, then it would work with a particular product of IBM. Do you think that those people are instructed to you know, change their workflow so that those problems get looked at first? Or? Well, in, in, in some ways, because I think the, the mechanisms of open source kind of guide that and protect it from being, from being uh, sort of derailed. But if, there are, if there's sort of an itch that needs to be scratched for IBM or Red Hat customers, then they will dedicate resources in terms Which is, of people and money. I mean, the payoff is that it's good for everyone. Exactly. Now, now, if um, that where it would become a problem would be if leadership decisions were starting to be guided, you know, towards the the end goals of one company or another. But I think in general that uh, the the fact that it's the, the code is there for anyone it could always be forked, and if it needed to be, in another project could be started. Yeah. And I the fact that that the Mozilla Foundation has allowed companies to participate in this manner um, is good because there's. There's so many companies participating in this manner that not one can actually take take control and, and derail the project. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was at, uh, I went to the 
gnome or gnome summit in uh, for the, the gnome. <laughs> You're not wearing your free T-shirt today. No, not. Um, I'm wearing another free T-shirt actually. Um, I wear a new free T-shirt hey, every too. day. The uh, at the at the there was a gnome software development. This is the gnome Linux desktop project in Boston, and most of the people there, some of them were students that from from MIT, but most were employees of. Red Hat or Novell. There were a few Sun employees. Um, I think IBM. Um, but there's. It's kind of understood that they're they're being paid by these corporations, and there are, there are decisions that happen above their heads. But they have you know, because the open source software and the licenses and the the governance protects from from corruption pretty well. They're they they all work together pretty well. So do you think that if I mean let's say that. Uh, I mean, uh, this is completely hypothetical, but let's say one of these participating sponsoring corporations had a thought that if they changed something in Firefox that would ultimately be good or neutral, but it also, let's say, broke the MSN search or something, mm-hmm. that the open source world would have a way of exposing that somehow and not... Well, it, it's it, that's just it. Everything is very public. All Almost all the discussions happen on publicly accessible mailing lists and every single code commit code piece of code that's added or removed or changed from an open source project like Firefox for example is publicly visible and to make an example of that I had asked uh, um, Ben Goodger who works on Firefox if there's kind of a a hidden Easter egg in uh, I think if you go to in, in your location bar type about colon Mozilla I think it is there's like a quote and it's just kind of a hidden little quote about the birth of Mozilla. And I had asked if he was going to update it for the Firefox 1.0 launch, and he said he didn't really, he hadn't really thought about it or bothered because you can't do it as you can't sneak code in to oh, an open source okay. project because you know when you make that code commit, a bunch of people get email notifications. There's a public record of it, so that by its very nature is. Um, you know, so there's an audit trail, and then the audit trail is public, and, and the uh, everyone can uh, you know see, can see the audit trail. So, and in terms of governance, there's always the uh, the ability to, um, to for someone to pick up with the code and start a new browser tomorrow, right. which is usually in practical terms more of a threat than actually something that's used. And that's practice. what people are suspicious of Google uh, doing right now, but I don't think they would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just don't see the the need or benefit of 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 Google having their own web browser because right now, if you use Firefox, Google is the default search engine. Google hosts the Firefox start page, and that's a revenue sharing arrangement between the Mozilla Foundation right. and Google with the ad money that's generated. Well, it's interesting to see, and this really isn't. Well, I guess it is open source related on some level, but the fact that the web browser component of Mac OS X is sort of part of the, I don't know whether you would characterize it as being part of the operating system, but it's certainly there when OS X is installed, so I suppose that, yes. that means that it is, is now something that products like NetNewsWire, which is an RSS reader, can use within a, within a NetNewsWire window. So yeah. now I can, you know, it sort of makes you wonder what the browser is, because I'm, if I'm reading a website in NetNewsWire, then it's basically my browser. Yeah, well, if you... It's it, it. You can separate the the rendering engine and the component yeah. that draws the page from the but application that wraps. The interesting it. thing about this in the in the Mac world is that a it hasn't been as controversial as it was at Microsoft when there was that whole burning the browser into the OS and you know that was all there was legal action about that. Yeah. The other thing though is that I think Microsoft seemed to sort of try and make everything the browser like the Windows Explorer that used to navigate your file system. They tried to turn that into a web browser, yes. and I think Apple resisted. Apple has made that component available for web browsing in other applications, but they haven't tried to make the Finder into a web browser, yeah. which I think makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because yeah. um, the the notion of your sort of your your Finder or your your you know your file explorer like loading web pages, while theoretically interesting because you can then modify that HTML, is practically useless. It yeah. just I think slows things down. Yeah. So. I'm going to bring up a question that's not on the agenda, um, but the Firefox 1.0 release. Um, like 20 million people have downloaded it. Um, Spreadfirefox.com put a two-page ad in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been on almost every news site, uh, technology and just yeah, traditional news, news as well. The logo 
that's been put on all these sites that was in the two-page spread was conceived kind of in this building, just like 20 feet above us. It was. How does that make you feel? I mean, you were you were you were kind of the I'm not. What's your term? You're kind of like the creative director or something of the brand. Yeah, the uh, visual design coordinator. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, I How did like you're like the midwife of the logo, not the the. the that's actually uh, though slightly disturbing and good analogy. Yeah. How does that like? How does it make you feel when you open up a New York Times and there's a two page spread well, of something you were. You had hands-on experience. It's pretty with. cool. I mean, the, the the birth of the concept for the logo, um, once the name was established, Firefox. I think it wasn't a huge stretch to go. I mean, we explored what visual representations can you have for a web browser, and we really couldn't come up with much more than a globe. Um, uh, it's just a it's just an abstract concept. It's hard to render visually, and so the combination of the fox and the and the globe was pretty obvious. But Daniel and Stephen and I here at at Silver Orange, we bounced the ideas around. It, we drew it on a Daniel and I sketched it on a uh, on a whiteboard, and then Stephen Darash he um, pencil sketched it out. And what he pencil sketched is very close to what it ended up being finally rendered by John Hicks, who lives in the UK, and ending up in the New York Times. So my, like you said, my involvement was more like a midwife. I was there and you know trying to get the people who are more talented than myself working on the right on the right problems. Yeah, I mean, right it projects. seems to me that the interesting part of the story is that, I mean, the logo, nice as the logo is, and so much, it's so much better than the M or the F or whatever it was yeah. before. But it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not a revolutionary thing. The revolutionary thing is just the fact that, A, you can be in Charlottetown coordinating this, mm-hmm. uh, and that, B, I think it's really, it's a bunch of little steps like if Stephen had just drawn the sketch and left it at that then he never would have seen life so it sort of took a midwife or a shepherd yeah, to sort yeah, of yeah. put it all together and, and, and yeah, to but coordinate I think there's, there's very few people in the world there's very few times in the world that something like that happens where you know something that you've worked on gets distributed to the masses at it, that it's level so quickly we, you know, with such volume. we came yeah. in just at the right time because the when we started working on uh, on these visual aspects of Firefox, it was like a year and a half ago, maybe, and it was still called Phoenix, and it was already a good browser, but very rough around the edges. And in the year that we were involved, it that, that was pretty much when Ben Goodyear took over the project and turned it into a 1.0 release project. And uh, excuse me, and it was just the right time, and we got on, we got involved just before things really started to take off. So some of it was, I think good work some of it was the fact that we were we added our small piece of good work to an enormous amount of good work that had already happened and continued to happen that we weren't really involved in but and some of it was just happenstance but do you lie in bed at night and like think I am a god like you I I actually remember you you designed and you even wrote up the code for the uh, Firefox search page for Google um, yeah, I worked with the Google people too, to do the layout of that start page. And that's the start page for probably a lot of six million people <laughs> that they see that three times a day. Yeah. Does that like boggle your mind in the mornings? Um, not really. I think what, what's if there was a picture of you on the Google start page, yes, maybe it would yeah. have been. The what I think is most interesting is that it's. I think it goes to show that the motivation for get for involvement is more. Well, there's definitely. I definitely do enjoy the satisfaction of, of you know getting some credit, and it feels good to. You're be not driving a Lamborghini because <laughs> I'm not uh, driving a small uh, Japanese uh, hatchback. Um, but the uh, the motivation behind it is was originally that I liked this web browser, but it had an ugly icon. And as simple as that sounds, that really was the key. What got us interested in and involved, and there's been lots. I've been to California twice because of it. Our it's helped our company generate money because we've gotten exposure and contracts have come to us from it. But in the end, I almost feel like that that has a good-looking icon now. It's uh, a better web browser. My work, here is, my work here is done. What can I do next? i got to say, I, that's interesting to hear you say that because it's the amount of work that I've taken on in my life simply because I knew that if I didn't do it, someone else would do it and it would be ugly, <laughs> boggles the mind. And yeah. it's work that, you know, it hasn't necessarily been pleasant work or, you know, again, I've been paid for it and I'm not begrudging it, but at the same time, the 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 satisfaction that comes from using something that you've created yourself is sometimes more than 
than the satisfaction from you know the sort of abstract satisfaction of knowing that someone in Iowa is also using it. Yeah, yeah. And what's been interesting in the, f- the case of Firefox has been that for myself, the particular skills that were needed weren't necessarily ones that I had, but I felt I had a good understanding of what was needed and who could provide them, and and that I would have a good uh, at least be if I couldn't do it myself, I could tell when it was done well. So. In the end, I actually didn't really produce a lot of the things that... Ha- I mean, I've been involved in the design of the Mozilla.org website, but even that, Daniel Burka here did most of the... Pro- he was mm-hmm. the primary designer on it. Um, but I still feel a lot of satisfaction because, you know, someone needed to... You know, someone needed to say, hey, let's get a better version of that icon. Let's do it and let's get it done. And I'm already on to other small, uh, you know, however insignificant things. I mean, one thing I posted the other day on my weblog was a an overview of inconsistencies in the save confirmation dialog boxes on applications on knowing radio which is it sounds incredibly boring it's a small little detail but if uh if my little involvement can help that a little bit then it's one little piece that will be that will be better and it'll be better for everyone else and if everyone else does that then i think i'm becoming a uh an open source software zealot, I think, is the bottom line. Well, you know, the, and middle manager. The, I, the other thing is that using being a Windows user for so long, where it was, it was, it was the the things that were wrong with Windows. The part of the frustration of using Windows is that the things that are wrong with it, you have no control over. Very much, and you so. know that if you send email to bugs at Microsoft.com, that no one is ever going to respond. Yeah. And so the fact that you can see that, it can bother you, and you can do something about it. Um, it's probably even just even if you don't do anything about it, the mere possibility that you could is probably makes the absolutely. Less I mean, there are. I, I wish I could think of an example right now, but there are things that I've complained about, or, or if I filed a bug on, or, or made a feature request in a piece of open source software, and it's been, it happened to be something that was relatively easy to implement and uh, an idea people agreed with, and it happened in relatively well, quickly. Along those lines, although not open source at all, really, uh, maybe a little bit under the hood, but there's a, a uh, Mac OS X uh, SFTP or FTP client called Yummy FTP, mm-hmm. which I've never liked the name of, and that kept me from using it for many months. And then it has sort of this weird logo with a tongue sticking out of it, which drives <laughs> me crazy, too. But it's an excellent piece of software, and the developers are so responsive. Like, I will literally say... I wonder if this could work like this, and I'll send them an email. And uh, you know, sometimes within a couple of hours, they say, "Okay, we've released like 1.06, and it has that suggestion in it." It's very, it's very cool when that happens. Yeah. Uh, the, and that's been happening since the, uh, we've I've had peripheral involvement in a bunch of different open source projects. And that's one of the the, the the big attractions to it, I think, is the fact that you have, even if you don't want to exercise it, you have some control, and it's not at the whim of a corporation somewhere. Can I talk about the schooner and then we'll close? I think so. Um, uh, this is sort of an interesting story that happened last week. I have a friend, Harold Stevens, who's a travel writer and I think adventurer would be an accurate term for him. He lives in Thailand. Uh, he has had literally a life of adventure, and one of his adventures was constructing a ferro-cement schooner. In, uh, it was sort of constructed in Thailand in Singapore. And this was in, the I guess, the late 60s, early 70s. And he did do it with this with the intention of sailing the South Sea, uh, sort of in the in the spirit of you know the South Sea adventures of that he would have read about as he was a kid, and he did this, and it, the the schooner was beautiful, and he sailed the South Sea and and took people for hire and did all the things you would think an exciting South Sea adventurer would do, <laughs> and uh, then eventually the the schooner was in Hawaii and he wasn't with it, uh, so it was under someone else's care, and it was wrecked in a typhoon or a large storm there. And uh, basically, that was the end of it. He, uh, although he didn't release it formally, it was sort of salvaged, and he sort of assumed that was the end of it. He ended up writing a book called *The Last Voyage*, which was about the building and the construction, and then finally the the death of Third Sea. And uh, I read the book, and it was sort of partially through reading the book that I got to know him. And since that time, I put together a website for him, and we visited him in Thailand, and, and become quite good friends with him. As a result of all of this, I have what's called a Google Alert set up on for Google News for his name, Harold Stevens. And this is something you can go, if you go to Google News, you can set up for any keyword, you can set up a Google Alert so that if th- that word or phrase appears in a news article anywhere in the uh, news sources that Google scans, you'll get an email. Now, I have a quick question on that here. Yes. 
Do you have everyone that you know's name in as a Google alert? No, I have my clients. Okay. I have last name Rukavina because I like to keep in tra- touch with other Rukavinas, mm-hmm. although... Uh, State Senator Tom Rukavina in Minnesota is 99% of the Rukavina He's traffic. a real media whore. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, Yankee Magazine, the Old Farmer's Almanac, Harold Stevens. I mean, the, the you know, it, it works well for some things and not for others. Rukavina is fine, but, you know, Garrity would probably be fine, but James, like, you wouldn't want to, because he'd get everything. Right. Anyway, so uh, last See week... See you in there, Stephen. I'm not... Yeah, yeah that's right. Sorry. <laughs> last week, I get a hit, which is actually the first hit I've ever had on Harold Stevens, uh, remarkably, because you would think it would be a common name. And it was a story in the Olympian, which is a, a newspaper out of Olympia, Washington, and it was about Third Sea and Third Sea sinking in the harbor off Olympia, Washington. And as it turns out, someone, I guess, somehow Third Sea had been purchased out of salvage in Hawaii, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Someone had acquired it, and we're not sure of the complete story yet, but somehow it had ended up in Olympia, Washington, at the bottom of the bay. And uh, so I, I emailed Harold about this, and he got in touch with the author of the article in the, uh, in the Olympian. And, uh, and now they're talking about Harold becoming involved in the salvage effort and Third Sea sailing one day again. So That is the most bizarre story. It is. It was very bizarre being in the in the thick of it. I mean, it's sort of a it's a it's an addendum to a whole bizarre series of of uh, circumstances that got me to know Harold in the first place. Yeah. But so it's sort of par for the course, but it shows the Google alerts can actually. Well, it's pretty cool that something uh that sort of happens th- through the internet has generated a connection of something that something real like that. Yeah. Like that. It shows that it's more for just keeping track of your recipes. Yeah. Anyway, we're a minute and uh no, an hour and four minutes in, so I guess it's... I'm bored. Say goodbye. Yeah. Live from the Formosa Tea House, I'm Peter Rukavina. I'm Dan James. And I'm Stephen Garrity. Shouldn't we go like this? We're here to pump you up. <laughs>